Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alan Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright and today's guest is Steve Sullivan. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. And we've come on to talk about your documentary, Being Frank, the Chris Seavey story. Yeah. Now, before we go into any detail about that, do you want to tell people, A, when they can see the film? They can see it. Well, there's a series of preview screenings happening every day around different parts of the country, but the actual film itself comes out on general release on Friday, March 29th. Okay. Um, and, and in cinemas and on digital. Cool. Well, I'll put a link in the show notes so people can check listings local to them. And then very briefly, for those that might not know what Being Frank is, because it's about Frank Sad, I'm going to give a brief synopsis as to what Being Frank is as a documentary. Yeah, so it is a feature-length documentary for the first time of who was that guy inside Frank Sidebottom's head. What was he doing? What was he thinking? Why would you? Why would anybody wear a fake head for twenty-eight years? Um, so that's that's what the film seeks out to address. And if people don't remember who Frank Sidebottom was, we're talking, of course, about the guy who wore a papier-mâché head um, and was a was a northern comedian, musician, illustrator, animator, and general nuisance. Indeed, indeed, he was. And as someone who you may have already guessed. Uh, grew up in the northwest he was a face that was very familiar and a and a weird thing that that, that, that seemed to, that that when i even went only as far south as birmingham when i went to Polly in 1980 no, 1991 he wasn't as well known and i didn't understand um yeah um i didn't realize how much of a northern phenomenon it was but that's a that's a that's I th- well i guess it's partly because of how much work he did on a really local level you know, um, I mean, people will remember Frank Sidebottom because he was nationally famous because of all the Saturday morning kids shows and stuff. But the, the majority of his work effort and output would have been done in pubs around the northwest, uh, clubs, you know, working men's clubs and, and all the rest, just like touring on this incredibly local level. He was also local radio up north. He appeared on all the local telly all the time, you mm. know. So in the northwest, I kind of I kind of come to think of him as he's a bit like our Robin Hood. 
really, but for the Northwest, you know, apart <laughs> from he wasn't, wasn't robbing from the rich and giving from the poor. He was just, um, <laughs> just messing everybody about. <laughs> so, so why, the, the first question that speaks to mind is why do a documentary about being Frank? Well, because, I mean, like you, I grew up in, in, in the Northwest as well. I, you know, I grew up in Preston and, um, he, he was just everywhere. And, um, but I, I remember him from like number 73 on a Saturday morning, which is just about the point where I was stopping watching kids TV. I was more, I'm slightly older than that. And I was, I was more, um, kind of swap, you know, swap shop than Tiz was, you know, 81 was kind of my era of watching kids shows. But, um, but by the time I, by the time he was on number 73 and Motormouth and What's Up Doc and all those ITV kids shows, I'd started working in a comic shop in Preston as a Saturday job when I was like 14. Right. And, um, and one Saturday the phone went and I picked it up and it was Frank Seibon. And I was like, I know this voice. And, and I, and he wanted to speak to my boss, Dave. Um, and I said, who is it? And he said, it's, it's Frank Seibon, the guy off the telly. And I was like, oh, God, it is. It's Frank Seibong. Um, so I went to part of the boss. And, and the reason Frank was phoning up is because we booked him to do a personal appearance because the comic shop was, I should say, was Thunderbirds themed. So it was like just, a, you know, Frank was drawn to that, like a kind of moth to a flame. It was mm-hmm. just all, thun- all Thunderbirds. Um, so um, the, the, we booked him to do a personal appearance. And um, my boss came to the phone and started talking to him. And um, Frank was asking him all the things you would need to know if you were doing a personal appearance, you know, what, what day do you want me? What time do you want me? Where do we park? How much am I getting paid? What shall I do? How long do I stay for? All the, all the things you need to know. And, um, my boss got about a minute into the phone call and he just suddenly looked at the receiver in a really confused way and put it down and walked away. <laughs> and, and so I went and found him. I said, you didn't say goodbye to Frank. And I, and I always remember that at that time, you know, using the phone was a really formal thing. And I'm sure you'll remember, you know, you said the number when you picked it up. That's, Indeed, that's how yeah. formal it was. Mm. Um, so you certainly said goodbye to people. And, and he and my boss hadn't said goodbye to the most famous person I'd ever spoken to at the time. So I, I wanted to know what's going on. And so I went and found him. And this grown man, my boss, was just looking totally confused in the stockroom at the back, looked just beside himself with confusion. And, um, and I said, you didn't say goodbye to Frank Sidebottom. He said, well, I would have done, um, but we got about halfway through the conversation and then all of a sudden Frank shouted, oh, I've got to go. My mum's just come in and he slammed the phone down on him, um, you know, and it, and it just, you know, as a, as a teenager, I was just totally baffled by that. Who on earth would conduct their business relationships like it's some kind of absurdist gag, mm. um, you know, um, so so I just I just remained from that point onwards fascinated by Frank Sidebottom and the why the why of Frank Sidebottom. Why why is he doing this? Why is he messing about rather than taking his own career seriously? Um uh so so I ended up um I mean to cut a long story short, I, I went on and became a, a film an independent filmmaker, which is how I think of myself. Mm-hmm. And um I I'd made quite a lot of short films over the years. Um and then in about two thousand ten it was kind of announced that uh, Frank Sidebottom's having a comeback and he hadn't been around performing or in the in the public consciousness for like a decade or so. He just kind of disappeared. So um I said to a friend of mine who was a big Frank Sidebottom fan, how do I get in touch with him? And he said, oh, well, there's only one way to get in touch with Frank, and it's a P.O. box in Temple. <laughs> um, so, he, so he gave me that, and I wrote to, the, I wrote to, to Frank, because I didn't know it was Chris, and I, I wrote to Frank and, and said, like, 
this is what I do. I'm a filmmaker. Here's some of my short films. Would you ever consider work collaborating on something, a film? You know, um, and if I sent it on a Tuesday, he'd have got the letter on a Wednesday. Well, I had a reply on the Thursday, so he must wow. have written straight back. Um, me indeed. And his reply just said, "Come on Sunday, bring a fantastic film crew." Um, he didn't explain what we'd be doing um, or what was going on, um, and and you know, probably most people would just go, "I needed more information." But I just thought I need a fantastic film crew and we need to get up there. Um, so we so we turned up on this Sunday and um, Frank was doing a magical temple tour. He was just giving this tour of his local village and all the showing off all the amenities of it. Um, you know, the chip, there's a chip shop. There's the post office with the two post boxes, one for left handed people, one for right handed people. Um, <laughs> and. Um, that's the football pitch where my football team at Temperley Big Shorts play every Sunday. You know, it was just, um, it was just hilarious. And, um, you know, he was driving around on this open top bus um, with a hundred of his most dedicated fans wanting to spend the day with like a living cartoon character in real life, um, you know, walking around the actual streets. So, um, so, so we kept in touch after that, but I, but I, I mean, the thing is about making magical template toys. I spent most of the day with Frank Sidebottom and I spent about five minutes with Chris Seavey and those, and those five minutes I spent with Chris only left me with more questions that provided no answers whatsoever. Mm. Um, so, so it just left this kind of larger set of questions about who he was and why is he doing this? And, um, uh, and, and we kept in touch and we said, look, we'll work together again. We'll make something else together. And we had all these like plans and um, one, the, the most concrete plan was that we were going to go at one point to New York with Frank Sidebottom and the Happy Mondays and make a documentary about that. Um, and then and that, and then I was just on the verge of booking my ticket for New York and he phoned me up and he said, oh, it's been cancelled because Bez has had a problem with customs. Uh, and we're not going now. Um, so... Uh, so he got cancelled. God knows what that would have been like. Mm. Frank, Frank and the Happy Mondays, you know, having a lap around New York, that would have been glorious in itself. Um, but sadly, it didn't happen. And then, you know, there came the day when I had a phone call from somebody going, oh, your mate Frank Sidebottoms died, um, which was such a shock, you know, kind of especially because Frank Sidebottom can't die. He's, he's a fictional character. Mm. Uh, which you know uh, is weird in itself, um, but I knew I knew what the tech, the call meant, and it you know it meant sadly that this guy Chris had, had gone, and there wouldn't be any more Frank Sidebottom, and and there would never really be any explanations from Chris as to what was what was he what was he doing, what was going on, why yeah, why yeah. was he this, why why would any creative person kind of this is one of the biggest things for me is why most creative people that I've ever met do want recognition for the work that they've done they do you know it's you put work out into the world and you want some kind of pat on the back from people going we understand the communication you've just put out you know and we get it and we support it and we like it or whatever um but chris created a situation where he was a highly creative man but he created this situation deliberately um where he never got the credit you know the credit all went to the persona yeah, I mean, I must admit, even like even being sort of overly familiar with who Frank Sidebottom is, the name Chris Seavey was 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 largely, I wouldn't say relevant, but just 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 not not on the radar at all. It was only no. sort of in, in the in the wake of his death did that name, yeah. be, and then obviously the the, the mental that it came to, that it came to mean anything. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Like you said, it, it never dawned on me till the way you were describing it. Yeah, like yeah, 
the reality of his fictional character and how much weight was behind it. Yeah, and, and how much well, weight I, he carried is, is when he when he dies, then it dies as well, doesn't it? Well, it's, it's how much reality he managed to invest into the character as well. Yeah. I mean, so many people said to me when I made the film and interviewed them that as far as they were concerned, Frank Sidebottom was a real person, you know. Um, and, and the more you look at it, the more you see that that's true. You know, Frank has his own uh, social network. He has his own friends. He has his own obsessions. He has his own interests. Um, he has his, like, fully fleshed out life and, like, meta universe. You know, the more you listen to the albums and stuff, Frank starts developing his own, you know, characters, and he has Little Frank, who has a girlfriend called Little Denise, and they even had Amoeba Frank, which is like a one-cell ventriloquist puppet. Um, you know, it just it goes on and on and on, Frank's world. So he created this, like, vast world for this character that just made it more and more believable, and the more believable it became, the less purpose there was, I guess, in Chris being a person in his own right. So, so to to start making a documentary, having obviously having always been a fan for a long time, having established that relationship, and then him sadly passing away. Yeah. What what were your what were the <laughs> steps for you then to sort of embark on on making a documentary? What was the trigger for you? Well, I, w- I ended up going to Chris's funeral, mm-hmm. and and I heard quite a few stories that day about the man himself, um, which were all. Um, you know, hilarious as well as deeply poignant because you were at a funeral. But but there were some like really incredible stories about him and and what he'd been like. And you suddenly realise, oh, there's this. He he sounds even more incredible than than Frank Sidebottom, and it just made me want to know more. Um, so, but but you know, he he just died. His family were grieving, and uh, I wanted to leave it like a respectable period of time before I even tried to bother them with anything. Um, but it was only about two years after Chris died that I was talking to some other filmmakers I know, and we were just talking about future projects and whatever. And um, I said to one of them, you know, I'd really like to make a documentary about who was the guy who was Frank Sidebottom. And, and one of my mates with such clarity just said, um, oh, you should just be making that now. What are you waiting for? And and it just like hit me with such a kind of you know, truth to it that I just went home and I emailed Chris's brother who I'd met at the funeral and said, look, has anybody asked about making a documentary about your brother? Not about Frank necessarily, but about your brother and who was he and why was he doing Frank? And um, Martin CV emailed me straight back, just like Chris had written straight back in the first place. Martin emailed straight back and he said, look, I've just cleared Chris's house. I've got a hundred boxes of stuff. I've got nowhere to put it. And if you could, if you could bring a van and haul it away and try and make something out of it, you'd be doing us a favour. Um, so it just was one of those weird moments where what I wanted to do coincided with with actually it's totally served a need for the family. Mm. Uh, and um, and that's so that's kind of how it started in, in a kind of foolish, um, independent, uh, yeah, let's make a film kind of way. You know, yeah, almost almost holding a mirror. Up. Almost holding a mirror up to Chris CV, really. <laughs> well, that's the thing is at the end, the way that I've ended up making it, it you know, in this kind of real DIY culture, independent way, um, where you don't worry about necessarily even the end goal. It's just the process, and you mm. just, you, if you don't start, you'll, it never happens, you know. So just start. That is how he approached everything he did, and so, so it's kind of ended up being made in a way that suits him. You know, mm. um, to to the point where I mean, the thing that I'm personally most proud of as a filmmaker is that this is this is my final cut 
of the film. Not not a thing is in there that I was forced to put in and not a thing is missing that I desperately wanted to put in there and then found out that I couldn't for any reason or nobody would let me or, um, you know, it, it has ended up being a DIY thing. Now, part of the process that you did to help <coughs> make this possible was to draw yep. on crowdfunding. Uh, yeah, many people listening who would who would value to hear your experiences of how you made best use of crowdfunding and how and and any lessons learned you can pass on about crowdfunding as a way of <clears throat> raising money to make a movie. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, when I started making this film, very much we're talking about seven years ago, mm-hmm. crowdfunding was this incredibly new thing that was kind of like un, unproven and um, bless you. Um, it was, it, it was, it was just new, it was a new thing. Um, so it suddenly people were going, oh, you know, you could potentially crowdfund this in that he has a fan base. Um, there are other people out there who will want to see this. So you could ask them for money. I mean, I did ask the film industry for money before that. And the reaction I got was, well, we don't know who he is. He's an, he's a nobody. Um, why would anybody want to see a film about him? Is there going to be a story big enough? You know? wow. Um, wow. Yeah, but you know, you got to remember that Frank Sidebottom was a cult figure. Mm. Um, Chris Seavey was a virtual unknown. Um, yeah. So the idea that this guy might have had anything about him beyond this character was was not something that people were going to invest in on 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 a chance, you know. Um, but it didn't bother me. I, I just wanted to know for my own reasons who he was. So um, whatever whatever we found out, that's the film. That's the pro. You know, so the process is worth it. Um, so I so I ended up doing this crowdfunding route, and um, uh, I set up a mail, uh, um, like a Mailchimp, um, what do you call it, like a, a newsletter update uh, group before before I did the the Kickstarter. Mm. So just to just to try and start attracting Frank Sidebottom fans to it, so I could let them know ahead of time this is this is what who I am, this is what I'm planning to do, this is when we're going to be doing it. Um, so at least it wasn't just going to emerge as a as a Kickstarter project that nobody had ever heard of, you know, from day one. Um, and that process was pretty good. I mean, the first morning, well, I launched it at like midnight, the Kickstarter. And when I woke up the next day, I think there was like 11 grand by breakfast or something like that. Bloody or 18,000 the first day or something like that. So so the Frank Sidebottom fans knew about it and they were excited to see it. Um, and uh, But, I mean, I'd, I'd already been and shot some interviews with his family by this point, got them on board. Um, so the Kickstarter video was able to at least show you this is Chris Seavey's family. Um, these are some of his colleagues who are already willing to talk to us. Um, like we've done a lot of work just to establish it as a credible Kickstarter mm. um, beforehand. But you know, the one, the biggest piece of advice I would give to anybody thinking of doing it is just be absolutely clear to the word what that what you're promising you can deliver on. Um, because if you do let people down, they will let you know about it. And you're talking about thousands of people. Um, uh, and, and don't get me wrong, 99% of the people that have backed my project have shown me the most incredible patience, um, kindness, support, you know, that's gone way beyond what I could ever have hoped for. Mm. Um, and, and But you do get 1% with a large crowd of people who will let you know that you're doing a terrible job as far as they're concerned or you've hurt them or um, you've let them down. You said this and, you know, I mean, foolishly and naively, I, I promise that this film would be with people a year later 
Um, and it was, it was only when we started filming it that you suddenly then realize Chris Seavey's life opens out into this like huge, um, narrative of all these things that he packed his life with which yeah. was unknown information when i started making it all i knew about was the frank sidebottom bit and then he realized oh god first chris had his own creative life and career as himself in this throughout the 70s he was he carried on making work as chris cv all through the years he was frank sidebottom um you've got everything that he ever did in his life um it just became this vast vast story that every interview we did led to another person going oh you should talk to this person now you know so we ended up shooting like 50 interviews um which which is what the kickstarter money paid for which yeah. was the interview process yeah. uh, which like took about six months um after which point you know there was virtually no money left and um years of editing <laughs> lay ahead to sort through all the rushes of, of 50 interviews and then chris's own archive which was about there's probably there must be like i mean I've, i must have edited well over 400 hours of footage um so chris's oh. chris's own archive had hundreds of hours of footage in it he taped every tv appearance he taped always home movie moments you know which are like so rich and beautiful in the film when you see them you know stuff with his kids and um he, he was making films at, at home with them there's always super eight there's there was hundreds and hundreds of audio cassettes um video and film on every weird type of format from from super 8 right up to um he had this format he absolutely loved called vhsc mm. which were ti which are tiny vhs tapes um which he, lo he loved because they were small mm. um but you have to put them into like a big cartridge and load them into a vhs player just to, just to be able to play them but but all of this stuff was analog bear in mind you know chris's entire life was analog so it all had to be digitized before you can even properly which, which look takes at it time. and start editing it, which, which takes real, it takes real time. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. There's no, there's no um, short, there's no shortcut to, to no, uh, analog. I mean, no. I guess an, a simple analogy would be if you, <laughs> if you make a mix cassette, you've literally got to listen to ninety minutes of music at the very least to make it. Whereas if you make yeah. a mix CD, you just drag and drop things onto a playlist exactly. and then burn it, and that's it. So yeah. the analog and exactly. the digital world is not. But then, equally, digital or, or analog, you've still got to watch it and assess its value to the documentary. Again, that yeah. takes time. Uh, but just, yeah. just, to, just, to, just to sum up what you were saying there about crowdfunding, that it sounded to me like a, a valuable thing for people to understand is... Oh, this, this film would never have got off the ground without crowdfunding. True, um, I mean, but, it's, but I'm, just so... thinking, I'm thinking in terms of what you were saying there about some of the lessons learned, but it sounded to me like if you can somehow, without underselling, sort of under promise and over deliver rather than over promise exactly and oh for process, sure for sure yeah if you can better. do it that way around you're gonna have a much better experience and i haven't had a bad experience of it at all you know i i've had so many people come forward who got like some of them end up becoming friends you know mm. that you just the people that you know you're going to know for the rest of your life um but but i mean we had one guy it was not just a crowdfunding what the, what the kickstarter enabled me to do was crowdsource stuff as well like i mean i've had two at least two backers sent me hard drives with like 50 frank side bottom shows each that they'd filmed you know so with like full permission to use all the footage and full support um which has been unwavering you know over over year after year after year just here's what i've got you can use it just make the best thing you can um so that that kind of support i couldn't have done this film mm. without um but we had, and we had one guy i put out a thing one day going 
look, we're coming up to Manchester all the time to do all the all these filming, these interviews. Kind of, and it was kind of in a jokey way. Could anybody put us up? Could anyone put up a film crew in Manchester? Because it would save thousands on hotel bills and stuff. And um, one guy emailed me and said, "Yeah, I'll, gi I'll give you my house in in Cholton in Manchester, um, and you, I'll send you the key. You can use it whenever you want. You can all stay." It was just, it was just unbelievable. And we went there like time after time after time. It must have saved thousands of pounds um, that otherwise I would have had to have raised. So the film would have been further delayed and, um, you know, just the generosity. And it's, but it's the love for Frank Sidebomb. That's the thing that this film has been able to tap into is that the, the love that people had for him is so huge. And I, I come to realise that I think it comes down to how much love he put out there to his audience. You know, Frank especially would, well, and Chris as well, um, would would go way above and beyond for people um, regularly. Um, you know, massive gestures to one person. Mm. Um, and he would do that day after day after day. And people have never forgot that. You know, it's the, some of those things are like the highlights of some of those people's lives. So anything they've been able to do to just go well, look, you're working with the family. It's the official film. You're obviously doing it properly. What can we do to help? Hmm. Uh, and and that has been a recurring theme throughout the last seven years. Just just total strangers going. We're united in Frank's side, but on what can we do to help? Do you think? I mean, it, it, it's hard. It's impossible to answer this, um, but it just makes me think about how much Chris Chris was aware of how much positivity. He put out in the world because if you look at look at I mean I should, let me start that again in in terms of in terms of Chris Seavey I'd never seen his face in my life I'd only ever seen Frank Sidebottom so when yeah. I see your documentary that's the first time I've ever seen who Chris Seavey is the man behind yeah. Frank Sidebottom suddenly you've kind of opened up the canyons in my mind it's like what the <laughs> frig's going on now because I'd only ever seen Frank Sidebottom and it was almost like you know. You know, like Superman, you know, you never see him without his kit on, yeah. um, so to speak. And then to then find out there's this other parallel story of a creative yeah. man pursuing his dreams and ambitions alongside what I already thought was a success story called Frank Sidebottom yeah. is, is a real eye-opener. So for you, for you as a documentarian, obviously yeah. you, were do, you, were, you were mining the Chris Seavey story, but how on earth did you sort of stay on track, as it were, with a narrative rather than go off down every windy road that, that Chris Seavey could possibly take you down? Well, originally, I did go off down every windy road he could take <laughs> me down. Um, and it was very wide. It was the long and winding road, um, or the the very long and fantastically winding road, as he would probably have called it. Um, <laughs> but, it, but, it but, but I did. I pursued every single story to, mm. to its nth degree, over probably a few years and it's on and it's only then that you can really edit the film like now that's that's it at its biggest let's start to pull it in eventually to its tightest mm. um and most stripped down boiled down into what is the most essential things but my first edit was 11 hours and 18 minutes good lord um, because and that was only I had this big list that was everything I thought was essential to know about Chris Seavey, his life story, his personality, his psychology, every everything, um, taking in all the best of his work in all his different guises, um, and it came in at eleven hours and eighteen minutes. So uh, five of us watched that version, and it took us a weekend to watch it. We started on a, on like Friday tea time, 
and ended at Sunday tea time. Um, and I remember the first person to, to say anything after that was um, Chris's roadie, Dave Arnold, who just said, is that all there is? Um, really? So, yeah, he just wanted to carry on watching it. So um, it was, it, it, this film in itself has, has existed in forms that were just vast, you know. Mm. Um, and it, it just takes years from that point to just whittle it down as as everything that you want to possibly take out becomes a challenge to everything that's staying in, you know, well, if, if that stays, this has to go, or but what if that stayed, then, oh, well, what are the knock-on effects? And it's just, I, I always kind of thought of it as like making a 10,000-piece jigsaw um, where you have no picture of the box to see what it is you're trying to make. Mm. You've just got to try and keep putting the pictures together until until, until you can see what the picture is. Um, but it, But it was like... You know, I always knew that the film should be playful. It should reflect him. Um, but I, I, I kind of came to think of it as well, like trying to make a biopic, but of two different people at the same time. Yeah. Um, it's like two biopics in one, because you've got Chris and you've got Frank. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's impossible for me not to see the success as I perceive Frank Sidebottom and then be surprised to learn that while, yes, it was a success by, by most measures... To Chris Seavey, it was like a shadow cast. It was arguably sometimes like a shadow over him that he was yeah. trying to escape at yeah. the same time. Yeah. Well, I think it, it really, I think it really brings out the question of what what constitutes a success. You know. Yeah. Stuart, I really apologise. My doorbell has just gone. Yeah, I sure. Just need to go. Can we just pick that one up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I'll, I'll give me, give me, give me a minute. Okay. No worries. I don't normally leave the interruptions of the podcast in the final edit, but in this instance, I'm going to make an exception. And I think when you hear what Steve has to say when he rejoins the podcast, you'll know exactly why I kept the idea of the break and then restart of the podcast into the show. Over to Steve. Hiya. Hiya. Really sorry about this. I have just had a pallet delivered that's got 15 life-size Frank side bottoms on it. Of course um, you have. <laughs> of course I, yeah, of course I have. So I have got to go and just get it, get them off the road. Um, can I, could I possibly please call you back in like quarter of an hour? Yes, you can. Don't worry, Steve. Fast forward 15 minutes and... Oh, that's better. Hello again. You all right? Best. So it's always better when you've unloaded a pallet of life-size Frank side bottoms. <laughs> the, the, the week the weekend starts here, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, look, if you can't think of some possibilities with fifteen life-size Frank side bottoms, I just don't think you're trying. Quite possibly, I imagine Chris Seavey's laughing if he's seeing us now. My word. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine he's. I've, I've entertained him royally for seven years. I would have thought. <laughs> Someone says probably up there with John Lennon right now, just nudging him, going, see? See all the trouble they're going to over me, John. <laughs> and now, back to the interview. As much as, as, much as you can see the, the wonderful playfulness of Frank Sidebottom, you also get the distinct impression that he was also a shadow over Chris Seavey that he was running away from as much as he... You know, almost like almost masochistically, creatively speaking, because he kept him going. Well, I, I think the thing with Frank is that I don't think Chris expected it to be become what it became. 
I don't mm -hmm. I don't think he ever thought when he started doing it this is going to eclipse me in the next three years you know and I think when it started to he probably thought that was pretty funny um you know without ever re I don't think Chris was a man who for the most part looked into the future I think from what people have told me he lived in today I mean somebody even said that he barely very rarely ever went to sleep um because he he liked to live in the moment. So if he woke, if he had a snooze, if he woke up, it's still today, hmm. um, rather than I've had a kip and now it's tomorrow. Um, I think he was someone who just continually liked to live in today. It's always today. Um, so there's no real long-term, uh, you know, career plan like most people would come up with. Um, no, no, and that's clear. Um, that's clear in your documentary, isn't it? I mean, you, there's the, yeah. there's the examples of how much his family had to live, live with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it drives you mad. If you if you're with somebody who is just living for the moment, and and what they want to do in most moments is come up with a a gag or um, a stunt that is um, foolish and absurd, it can that can be quite wearing. You know, even from little details from his family. Like I remember them saying, uh, like his, his eldest son Sterling saying to me once that oh, he remembers a night when his mum went to do the ironing, and she went, "Where's the iron?" And then Frank's somewhere else with the iron on stage, and he's put a couple of Frank eyes on it, and it becomes his iron puppet, you know, Mulanek iron puppet. Um, so, you know, even, even just, you know, every aspect of his domestic life was kind of, um, uh, you know, had to serve this, this performance life he was living. You know, he didn't care for any domestic details. He didn't care for, like his wife says in the film, he didn't pay the bills and he didn't think he had to pay them. You know, people said they don't they don't think that Chris knew what money was for, really. Um, he wasn't bothered about the trappings of normal life. It didn't matter to him because um, he didn't have the time to think about that. He, had the, he, he was too busy thinking of his next um, prank or gag or, um, or song, you know. But, he, but he just thinking about his creativity. But from the audience's point of view, it, it, it says a lot for, for our imagination and what we connect with that that there was this this ongoing um, curiosity and, and, and enthrallment in, in the face of Frank Sybon. And this is going to maybe, um, this may have been said before, but it just dawned on me as we were talking, is that to take the head off and reveal who Chris Seavey is and do the same performance without the head on mm. makes me think of when the band Kiss decided to play without makeup and nobody took them seriously. And then they just put right. the makeup back on and then they were right. being took seriously again. It's, there's something, I don't know what it says about us as audiences that... Well, that, I think we want to suspend disbelief mm. and, um, you know, that's why fantasy and superhero films and all of it is like so huge and science fiction and all the rest is we want to live in another place outside of our own reality and going to see Frank Sidebottom you know you were going to a local gig that didn't cost very much and you were seeing for two hours a guy who's like a living cartoon um live out some kind of crazy fantasy life I mean what's not to like about that you know as well as you're looking at somebody who is like a master of uh improvisation pantomime um I mean even just that aspect you know like Bear in mind the Frank expression on that head never changes, mm. and yet if you watch Frank Sidebottom, he brings it to life so convincingly with just physical pantomime stances, the the you know the way he looks at you, or um, 
you know, people have told me that, you know, Frank once looked into the audience and they knew he was looking at them and they were terrified of it. Um, and yet, in reality, the guy inside couldn't really see more than about two feet out of the head. And I mean, I've come to realize that Frank's keyboard style evolved purely out of the fact that Chris can't even really see the keyboard um, for the most part. You know, it's just it's, so this this guy who's become this ramshackle um, you know, it's semi-amateur showbiz professional doing everything badly for a laugh. It's, you know, I don't think he had much of a choice because he couldn't even see what he was doing half the time. He's, he's, he's also, the other, the other contradictory element to, to the story is that on the one hand, he's a huge celebration of doing what the fuck you want. Yeah. But he's also a, a, a cautionary tale about the sort of, pers- almost like an underlying pursuit of not approval of everybody, but some he's looking for approval from somewhere, whether that be in popularity, in in um you know, this is going off what we see in the documentary, is that you can mm. you get the sense that on the one hand he he's just a wild card and whatever happens will happen and sometimes it lands, sometimes it doesn't, and you kinda go, I'm so jealous of someone who could who can just be that spontaneous and that and that off the mm. cuff and off the wall. But then at the same time he was trying to legitimately make it, you know, the pursuit of record deals and all that kind of stuff, which are very much within the, you know, the realms of normal. Um, I, I, I think it depends what you mean by making it. And I, and I think that it's what is it. Mm. Like Frank Sidebottom had lots and lots of mainstream media opportunities and he had far more than he ever actually did. Um, but I don't think that's what Chris actually wanted. I don't think he wanted to become a mainstream anything i don't i don't think he had the psychology to be able to cope with being mainstream Mm. i mean you know a lot of the talk about chris after he died was about some of the people that had worked with him and gone on to become like mainstream broadcasters and all the rest and Mm. you know i think some fans resented them like well they probably got all this money which you know a lot of them probably haven't but um they've got all this and you know they never give him credit and he suffered and and all the rest but you know to be a mainstream i think that's to not give them credit you know Mm. to be a mainstream broadcaster or whatever you've got to turn up same time every day Uh, there's a lot of industry involved in that and and you've got to you've got to rise to all of that chris didn't have that kind of personality he didn't want to turn up the same time every day anywhere he didn't want to be given a script that someone else had written and be told what to say um he just wanted to do his own thing so i think he did want success but he wanted it on his own terms he didn't want to compromise in any way okay um I think if he could have, if he could have become a lot, a lot bigger doing what he was doing without having to change, then I think he wanted that. Mm. Um, but I don't think he ever really wanted to be a mainstream, what we would class as a success, you mm. know, success in terms of economic terms or, or um, what's your viewing figures or whatever. I mean, this was not a guy who cared about those things. Um, he cared more than anything about doing his own thing, but which becomes the irony in the. He was doing his own thing every day, but he was doing Frank Sidebottom's thing, and it was only an aspect of Chris's thing. So I think the Frank world became too limited eventually to be able to express everything Chris wanted to express. So at that point onwards, if that's the only thing he can do to make a living, and that's the only way he's known, then it, then it becomes a bit of a trap because it stops Chris from being able to do what he, the other things he wants to do as well. Right, got you. So in a way, it kind of it's the 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 bigger appeal of Frank began to without 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 trying for that to happen began to create rules 
that yeah. Chris just wanted to break because why would he want to play by the rules? Well, why would he want to express everything he wanted to express as a creative individual purely through Frank's prism? Mm. So every creative idea had to then be checked up against the rules of Frank's world. Would Frank say that? Would Frank think that? Would Frank mm. want to do that? You know, but, but then Frank, Frank and Chris are like this ongoing battle anyway in mm. the, you know, Frank famously used to go on and on and on about Paul McCartney. Uh, and how much he loved Paul McCartney and how obsessed he was with Paul McCartney and how Paul McCartney looks like Frank and, you know, all all of this stuff. But underneath, you've got Chris Seavey, who actually was a John Lennon fan, um, you know, and was obsessed with John Lennon, um, not not obsessed with Paul McCartney. So so Frank has his own Beatle and Chris has his own Beatle. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. You've got, so then, so then, in some ways, you've got like so. Chris is going on. Chris is using Frank to go on and on about how great Paul McCartney is. Now is that Chris making his own like subversive statement to himself, really? Because he's never explaining it to anyone. That actually, the point of that joke is how great John Lennon was. Um, but he's keeping it so obscure that, that really, is he just getting satisfaction out of it himself? Or you can go the other way and go, well, is it just Frank? It's Frank, and that's what Frank likes. You know, genuinely, it's his own. Frank has his own personality within Chris Steve. He's physical biochemistry or whatever, where Frank has developed his own personality, and Frank likes Paul. I'd never thought of it that way before, but now you've said it, it's it's sort of yeah. It's it's, it's complex stuff, and it, when you throw it's in a meta, little Frank, it's a meta gang, well, isn't it? Yeah, it's put, a meta throw gang. Throwing throw little, little Frank and his rivalry with Big Frank, mm. and you know what's happening there. I, I just yeah. So uh, having having been that avid fan and then got to work with him and then yeah. got to spend all this time making a documentary and it's a question I like to ask all documentarians based on your perceptions going into this project as as the documentary filmmaker what for yeah. you was maybe one or two surprises that changed your perception of the subject matter you were tackling. It, I think it's pretty simple. It's just seeing how much stuff Chris had done as Chris, um, like finding out that he, when I started making it, I didn't know he'd had a band called the Freshies in the seventies. Mm. Didn't know he was a singer songwriter frontman of a, of a post-punk band. I didn't know that Chris had recorded album after album after album of material before that and never released it. It was just knowing that Chris was his own creative person. Mm. That's what started to come out of his archive when I started to go through it and put stuff into different piles according to what seems to fit with what. You suddenly realise, oh my God, there's this guy called Chris Eby who not only was he doing Frank Sidebottom, he was doing tons of other stuff as well um, and that, and and was this creative figure in his own right. That, that was the biggest shock, I think, to discover that. Um, but then also, you know, to discover... It's not just about Chris Seavey, this film. It's it's about the people in his life as well and how he affected them. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people interviewed in the film that, that have maybe not been in a film before. But when you see them, you know, you look at them and go, these people are fantastic characters. You know, they're really flamboyant entertainers and they're hilarious and they're free thinkers and, you know, like counterculture heroes in their own right. And most of them are living like quiet suburban lives, you know, um, where they go out now and again and do and carry on being a performer. And, who, who are you uh, referring to there? What sort of people? Are you oh, the people, well, first first person I would think of would be Rick Sarko, the bassist mm. of the of the Freshies. Um, yeah. You know, who 
you know, he's in he's in two different or three different shots in the film. Um, you know, both both as in his guise as the bassist of the Freshies, but then later he becomes Frank Sidebottom's bassist uh, and becomes a character in his own right called Tommy the Milkman, hmm. um, uh, which. Um, uh, and I also remember Mark Radcliffe saying, yeah, God, I remember seeing Rick Sarko on bass as Tommy the Milkman. But also then I could see in the front row was Chris's Milkman, um, who was called Tommy. Mm. Um, you know, it's like he just get, it starts to get that bizarre. Um, but, yeah, somebody like Rick Sarko, who I just I just think he's effortlessly entertaining. He's he is a, the sort of he's an individual. You know, just a complete individual. There's nobody else quite like Rick. And, you know, but you would never see him on Nevermind the Buzzcocks or any, you know, any mainstream thing. He's just someone who lives in like a quiet cul-de-sac, um, living out his own performance life. He still records music. He makes music videos um, and he goes out and plays. Um, but it, but it, he's like a brilliant raconteur. He's like a wit and a creative imagination in his own rights. And, you know, and the film is packed with those people. Um, so I, I think it's kind of, um, you know, there's probably a bit of a shock for an audience when you see it and go, wow, some of these people, <laughs> they were in Chris's life. You can see why they were in Chris's life. They're hilarious. Um, but they're not, but they're not regular people that you would expect to see in a film. You know, they're not the usual talking heads or anything. No, for sure. And interestingly, one of the more, you've mentioned his name, Matt Radcliffe, and it's, I never, I grew up in North Manchester, so sort of ten mi- you know, sort of near right. Bury, so sort of ten miles outside of Manchester. So Manchester was somewhere growing up that you you began to visit as you got older. It wasn't somewhere you knew, you know, the ins and outs of because you're not really from yeah. Manchester when you're that far away. I suppose. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I wasn't that aware of that kind of almost like absurdist tradition that 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 Frank Simon was part of, as opposed to being the only one. So the idea that that Matt Ratcliffe comes from that background too. Mm. And, and obviously he, he is the, the embodiment of what we talked about earlier, whereby he, he could take his idiosyncrasies, but then bottle them and be a performer within the realms of what people want you to do in terms of turning up at nine yeah, o'clock and working till yeah, one. Yeah, and what, I, and what I meant by all that is, you know, he's a consumer professional. Exactly, yeah, um, that's what I'm saying. No, it's not a criticism, it's, it's, a diff- Chris, it's a different personality, isn't it? Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's what most people would aspire to be. Mm. Um, and for Chris, I, I, he just didn't want to do that. He didn't want to be the consumer professional. He wasn't capable of being the consumer but what professional. But I mean, what, I mean if... what I mean, though, is, is, is that also for me, obviously, getting this revealed via your documentary, is that yeah. it explains also Mark Radcliffe's absurdism, which, despite being in the mainstream, he brought some absurdist notions to mainstream radio. Yeah. And then you see where the grassroots are. It's working across. It's working alongside the likes of Chris yeah. Seavey. And you go, well, that yeah. makes sense now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Mark, I think Mark, to be fair to him, was probably like the closest to like a proper collaborator that Chris had in the eighties. In yeah. that they used they used to do gigs just together, um, but they also used to work together a lot on Piccadilly Radio in Manchester, which mm. is not going anymore. But it was like Manchester's local radio, like commercial radio mm. station, Piccadilly. Um, and they did so much work together on that. I mean, Mark features in a lot of the Frank Sidebottom radio stuff. He produced a lot of the radio stuff, you know, and he's very humble about it, saying that his only role was just to open the door and let him in and let him play. But, I, you know, there would have been a lot more to it than that, you know. Um, yeah, so, you know. No, these, so for me, for me personally, as someone from that neck of the woods, it's, a, it's an interesting sidebar that you've, that you've kind of just, it's it sort of, seeps out of your documentary as opposed to being the focal point of it that yeah this is this was he was he not only was this it was he this 
this this creative spirit who couldn't who was compelled to keep wanting to do stuff in all different facets. But he was also a a a collaborator that existed amongst he had a group of peers as well, which again was a mystery to someone like someone like myself, despite living so close to where it was all happening. Yeah, and I think it's probably a, a result of how um, uh, small scale a lot of those endeavours were that those people were doing in the 70s and 80s, you know, how local it was to Manchester. And, mm. you know, one of, the, one of the phrases that's cropped up many times making the film is that people are going, yeah, but this was before the internet. Um, and it was. So if you were in Bury, 10 miles away, you're not going to know what's happening in Manchester. Mm. Um, you know, whereas now you totally would. You'd just be part of a group on Facebook or whatever, and if there's an event, you get an event update. And, what you know, people would email you or text you or ring you or whatever. Mm. Um, but but you had to seek culture out in the in the 80s. Um, you know, it, it was you know, it was harder to find out about things. And it was easier then as well, to, which is something I think we've lost, is that you could actually stumble upon something pretty random back then mm. that you wouldn't know you were into until you found out about it. Um, whereas, whereas now, you know, if you go on Amazon or whatever, it only shows you things it knows you are already pre-programmed to like um, because it wants you to buy them. Um, so it's the, the idea of finding out about culture in a, in a in the more haphazard way we used to do in like the, the 70s and 80s just doesn't really exist. So there's that. That's yeah, there's also there's always that idea. Now we exist in a world that seems to want permission to do stuff because yeah. obviously the space to do it is so much more expensive than it ever was. Therefore, to justify yeah. doing it, you've at least got to cover your costs. Whereas a night at the Star and Garter, you just put it on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then put another one on the next night somewhere else, and not really worry about it. Yeah, just keep just just keep doing it. But then I think a lot of it comes out of punk, though, doesn't it? You know, mm. just all these post-punk people are like inspired by that just do-it-yourself thing. But bear in mind, Chris Seavey, yeah, he's part of all that, but he was already doing his own DIY culture long before punk. He was putting cassettes out in 1974, just just recording them at home, put copying them to tape, putting them out, selling them direct to anyone who wanted one. Um, you know, he was his own DIY record label um, long before the Buzzcocks or whatever uh, people going to like democratic publishing. Chris was already doing that kind of stuff. Mm. And in one of his notebooks, this isn't in the film, but it's a story I absolutely love about him. In one of his notebooks, he talks about his like first forays into being a pop star. And um, at a ridiculously young age, like 15 or 16, he records an album uh, on like a multi-track tape player that he's got. And then he has four copies pressed to vinyl. And he gives one to his girlfriend at the time, two to um, uh, like school friends who I've never been able to track down, and one to a bloke who ran the paper shop around the corner uh, where, Chris, where Chris did a newspaper round. Now imagine walking into the news, the news agents where you do your paper round and slapping down a vinyl album on the counter and going, that's for you, boss. I've made that album. You know, it's just, he, he was just the kind of person who would do that. You know, even as a kid, he just knew that whatever he wanted to do, he could carry on doing it and find a way to do it. And, and the consequences didn't matter. Um, you know, and as you see in the documentary, the consequences for, for anyone taking that course over a lifetime, they do add up, um, you know, and eventually catch up with you. But he but he was somebody who just never I don't think he ever doubted that he could just do his perpetuate his own culture. And that this is why I love about him as well. Um, for a kid coming from like the suburbs of Manchester, who has got no money behind them and no contacts in the business to think that 
or to or to realize that your voice is unique and it's and it's and what you can think and say and do are as unique and as valuable as anyone else's contribution to culture um and that's your only justification you ever need i, I think is um heroic um, there's, you've, again, just the way you're describing it, you made me think of something else that, that, that probably adds to the ongoing appeal of Frank Sidebottom is that for, for all the people that may or may not have mushroomed out of whatever scene Frank was, was, was working, or the time that Frank was working in, he, mm. he, he almost becomes like a performer's performer. I remember, I remember early days when I used to, I used to, I saw Count Arthur Strong sort of come out as a thing and you go to shows at little venues and it'd be just full of other comedians because he mm. he'd become like this comedian's comedian as it were people who mm. performed could see the genius in it and i think that's where a lot of the i guess a lot of the the, the sustainability that isn't pre-planned or anything it's just that so much love of 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 them people going well i could never do that this needs to be seen. yeah I think quite a lot of the comedians split actually about Frank because he came out at a time when a lot of it was alternative comedy and it was very politicised and it was very left wing. Um, and unless you had a political agenda, I think for a lot of comedians, you weren't um, uh, valid. You know, you were part of some like musical tradition which we'd left behind decades before or you were part you know I don't think anyone would ever look at him and go oh you're the same as Cannon and Ball Little and Large or <laughs> um, or the comedians that were on like the comedians you know yeah. like all those guys your Bernard Mannings and whatever you know you, there was certainly nothing politically really yeah, incorrect about Frank's well but, but, the, but, the, but the political comedians at the time didn't get him um, and didn't consider him to be part of anything that they were doing. Um, I mean, there is a bit of footage of Ben Elton on James Whale show uh, with Frank, and Ben Ben Elton just looks like furious about him. Like this is this what is this? It's shit. Um, but that, of course, is part of the point of Frank's act. What is this? You know, mm. I'm doing something you haven't seen before. Which, which to me. I, I want originality. So if I, if I don't know what it is, I'm intrigued because it's something that I haven't seen before. Um, but, I mean, you know, there are comedians in the film. Like, I mean, I know Ross Noble told me that Frank was, like, the biggest inspiration on him becoming a comedian. You know, he saw Frank Sidebomb show when he was, like, 14, and, and it just blew him away. And he went, well, if that guy can stand around with a Breville toaster, um, you know, on a piece of string... Um, just smacking it around on the stage and, and talking to it about making toasted sandwiches for half an hour, then why, why can't I do it as well? Um, you know, so, um, maybe, maybe his craftiness gave, gave a lot of people, uh, you know, a bit of confidence that they could do their own thing and find their own thing. Um, but also, you know, that, that absurdity, he come, he's doing that at a point just before you've got Reeves and Mortimer and, you know, other people coming out and doing that and I'm not saying that it's all due to Chris Siegel Frank Sidebomb because I think he has his own comedy traditions he's following like he loved uh, Monty Python he loved the goons he loved the Bonzo dog band you know it's like that absurdity is a, is its own like fringe part of British comedy mm, no without and, a doubt you know, and he taps into that but I think the difference is he just he just believed it he believed in in being an absurdist and that meant that you planned your gigs in an absurd way it meant that you did your gigs in an absurd way you released material in an absurd way um you know he was like like a living um absurdist or situationist I think uh, you you as, as well as these um sort of names that might be familiar to people like Ross Noble and Matt Ratcliffe and, and Johnny Vegas who feature as voices 
sort of endorsing the the um, Frank Sabo. And you also, to my surprise, it, there's there's room in this documentary for for the fans for the voice of fans as well. One in particular, mm. uh, Steve Phillips, who's a friend of mine. Which when I when I saw the press screen oh, of, right. of your documentary, I was like. Fucking hell, Steve Phillips is he's in the final call. Yeah. <laughs> but he was. But what's, my, what's my mate doing in this? But film? Steve was the person who I, I last I went to see Frank perform. I can't remember how long ago. But it was since I've been in London, and it was at the Tate Britain. We, uh, right. we saw him do a show there together. Um, so yeah, it was fascinating. So yeah, the, the, sort of finding those fan voices amongst the kind of obvious well, touchstones. For me, it was finding. It was finding. It was. It was about for me. Uh, throwing out a massive net of who has something to say about this guy mm. and then uh, all these guys you know who has something to say about Chris or Frank what can you tell us and it wasn't it was never going to be a documentary that was all Chris it had to be about Frank so actually it's the fans you know with the Frank Sidebottom stuff that know the act the best mm. um, and had the most to say but Steve you know the guy you're talking about I just found from the first day I spoke to him on the phone I found him hysterical and mm. uh, he was someone who clearly loved telling the stories he wasn't nervous about doing it so he just came across as a brilliant talking head and he, re he remembered like key moments in the 80s of Frank's like first uh, kind of first wave before before we disappeared for a decade um, that I that I just thought these are brilliant you know like he's a guy for people who, who see the film he's a guy talking about like the Reading Festival and how big a gig it was and yeah how, no, I was how there exciting, how <laughs> exciting it was for the like ten thousand people yeah. in, a, in a tent all <laughs> worshiping Frank Steinbottom and um, you know but he managed to make the enthusiasm of it just totally come across so I mm. thought he was a brilliant interviewee and you know we even ended up he had more good stories stories than we were able to put in the film um, and he had one brilliant story which got left out which was about seeing Frank doing um, half-time entertainment at Manchester City and um, Frank had said all I, all I need is like a little card table in the centre circle and I'll come out at half-time I'm going to do some magic <laughs> and, uh, and he came out and started doing close-up hand magic you know cl cl close-up magic sleight of hand stuff and um, like holding a card up to the home fans who were 75 yards away and going is that your card you know and no he wasn't microphone so no one could hear him and no one can see what he's doing that so people were just booing like a whole stadium is just either befuddled or angry and you've got Frank Sidebottom going I've done a good job you know uh, that's that's part of my act is to just leave people either upset or baffled um, and, you know it's that's that's what he was about. Now we are going to have to draw this to a close because I think I think I could talk about this forever. So uh, let's remind people the film is on a limited cinema release from the 29th of March 2018, and also simultaneously yep. available through video on demand. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, um, I guess that's Amazon and iTunes and Google Video or yeah, whatever, yeah. whatever, whatever the kids have these days. So, um, is, uh, yeah. the, the aside to that, then obviously for people for, for the kind of fan base I, I can we, we see in the film and, and, and I, I already know for Frank, is, is there a plan for a physical release DVD where obviously things yeah, that fell, off, fell off the cut, fell in the cutting room floor can end up as extras and stuff? Is there a DVD in the in the making? For sure, there is a DVD and a Blu-ray. Um, and they come out on April 29th. Okay. Uh, I think they're already available for pre-order. Um, but they are, they they, they are the film mm. as you would see it in the cinema. But they are then rammed with as much extras as will fit on that format. Um, so uh, 
like there's something like another hour on the DVD, but there's like another hour and a half on the Blu-ray. You know, there's like extra stuff that's not even couldn't even fit onto the DVD. Um, and it's it's some of the rarest archive from Chris's personal archive, or his ex, his bonus stories that didn't quite make the film. Mm. Um, but it really is like some of that stuff is gold, you know, that you look at and just go, why is that not in the film? But, you know, you just can't, unfortunately, cram everything. And as you know from seeing it, this film is absolutely crammed with Chris's life. And and I don't think anyone before they see it will be expecting just how much stuff that man managed to do in in his limited 54 years that he had. Um, You know, but I personally, I hope people see it on the big screen if they get the chance, um, purely because, you know, we filmed some of the detail of his archive in in such tiny detail uh, but when you see it up close on a massive screen you realize how the you know the the level he was working at was mm. so could be so tiny and so detailed um and so packed with his energy and creativity that you need to kind of see that on the big screen i think to fully appreciate it and also if you see a film in the cinema the emotions are heightened because of the audience the 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 humor is heightened you know things are funnier in the cinema because there's an audience laughing as well so it i kind of feel that in a communal way, is how he would have wanted it to be seen. Um, course, because that's, how he, that's will, how he did his, his act, you know. Of course, yeah. And I'll, I'll put, like I say, I'll put in the show notes links to where people can find out their local screenings. Look, it just gives me to say thank you very much, Steve Sullivan, for taking up your time and coming that's on the podcast pleasure. to talk about your film. All I can say is, having seen it, is congratulations. And, and for the listener, Steve is not exaggerating. There is so much crammed into this film that... <laughs> you'd just think, yeah, uh, Chris Seavey did cram, creatively speaking, a lot into a sadly short life. Yeah, it was, but it was an epic life. You know? mm. So, yeah. Brilliant. Listen, thanks for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.